want to start this morning by telling you a story. And, and if you're interested in the story, it's found in 2 Chronicles 18. Uh, I love the story. It's, a, it's, it's, almost, it's almost comical, but it, uh, it's not comical. But I, my, the reason I start with this story is because it's going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allude to it in all four of the sermons. Okay? So this is not just a, ha-ha, let's get going. This is a story that there's a principle in it that will affect all four of our studies. The story is in Second uh, Chronicles 18. It's about a guy by the name of Jehoshaphat. You may remember the name Jehoshaphat. He was a he was a king in uh, the in Israel. He was a good guy, and um, he made a mistake by intermarrying with the family of Ahab. And you may remember Ahab. He was married to Jezebel. Um, just saying Jezebel, you know, as bad. Well, it was bad, and uh, he was uh, Jehoshaphat married one of their daughters. Uh, and he goes down either for a wedding party or for a wedding something or other, or just to visit his in-laws. I don't know. Or he, he goes, he goes to Ahab's place. While he's there, uh, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, um, will you go up against us when we go fight Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat says, yes, let my armies be like your armies and my horses be your horses and my shields. Be- oh yeah, we'll do it. And, um, and, and Jehoshaphat says, well, could we co- possibly consult with uh, the prophets, uh, the, the men who speak for God? He says, oh, yeah, I'd be glad to. And so he brings in 400 prophets of Baal. Now, the, the, you know what Baal is. Baal's a false god. And, and this is all in Second Chronicles 18, if you'd like to check me out. But um, brings in 400 prophets. And uh, uh, Ahab says to the 400 prophets, should we go up against Ramoth Gilead? And they all in unison say, boy." Yes, sir. Go get him. You're going to slaughter him. And one guy gets really carried away and he, he makes his helmet for himself and he's got little horns on it and he rides around and gores things. And, oh, y'all are going to, you're, you're going to win, win, win. And, and Jehoshaphat looks at all this and uh, being the good king that he is and he says, but, um, um, do you not have among you a prophet from the Lord? And, uh, <laughs> they have says, well, yeah, I got one, but I hate him. In fact, that's the words in the text. I hate him. And he says, because he never says anything nice about me. That's a good reason to hate him. But um, I hate him because he never says anything nice about me. He says, well, you know, how about this? Let's call him anyway. So they send some messengers out to get, uh, the guy's name is Micaiah. They send some messengers out to get Micaiah. And Micaiah comes over. And, uh, and while he's on his way over to the king's house, the messengers say to Micaiah, now listen. 400 prophets of Baal have told these two guys that they ought to go up against Ramoth Gilead. Now you need to play ball. I mean, you need to you need to get in there with them now, and and don't do anything stupid, and and uh, you know uh, just just tell them, I mean, just just play along. So Micaiah gets there, and uh, the two kings say, um, "Should we go up against Ramoth Gilead?" And Micaiah says, uh, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, y'all go right ahead." And apparently there was a, a bit of sarcasm in his voice, but Jehoshaphat. Or maybe it was Ahab says, how many times have I told you, I want to hear the truth? And so Micaiah says, I saw as a vision from the Lord, the two armies go out into the field and you're slaughtered. And you, Ahab, are going to die. You're going to be wiped off the face of the earth and they're going to be running and scattering like sheep without a shepherd. And you, Ahab, will die. And Ahab turns to Joseph and says, See there, I told you he hated me. 
Well, uh, sure enough, they go out to battle, and um, Micaiah was right. Ramoth Gilead whoops up on them, and Ahab is killed. Now, guys, I don't know whether you believe that story. Um, I don't know whether... I, uh, I do. I mean, I don't know whether you believe the Bible. I do. I mean, I, I believe everything in that story uh, is true. But whether you do or don't is really not the issue. The issue is this, or at least it's an illustration of the issue, that, that the decisions that you make and the people that you listen to for advice um, can be at times very costly. That is, to whom do you go to gain advice and wisdom? Who counsels you? Who gives you advice, who gives you advice about the decisions that you face in life? Huh? Now, and, and when you're making those decisions, what goes through your mind? What kinds of things vector into the, to the situation to, to lead you in a decision. Well, certainly one of the things, I mean, if I've got 400 people telling me one thing and one guy telling me the other, I mean, it's really pretty obvious to me that I'm going to be listening to these 400. And I understand that. That, that. that makes some sense. But on some occasions, some occasions, maybe not all, but on some occasions, the 400 are wrong. And, and what I'm trying to underscore is this. Not, not that the majority is always wrong and we as the persecuted minority. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that there's a lot at stake. There's a whole lot at stake at this, with decisions that, that you and I make. And the question becomes, who do I listen to as I work through the whole decision-making process? Because, folks, because Ahab listened to the wrong people, it cost him his life. And you can listen to whomever you wish. That's your call. That's your business. But I'm just trying to underscore. You need to know this. Depending on who you listen to, you can make decisions that will cost you big time. I start out like that, folks, because the the um, the four sermons that I want to preach to you are all out of the book of Romans. Actually, excuse me, they're all out of the Romans one. They're all out of the first chapter of the book of Romans. In fact, my four sermons were called themes out of Romans chapter one, and there I, I selected four themes out of Romans one, and I'm sure there are others in Romans one besides the four that I selected. But here are the four themes that I want us to look at with these four sermons. First of all, um, the gospel. Second of all, what about the innocent native in Africa who's never heard about Jesus? Third, sin. And fourth, the gospel. Those are the four themes that I think are predominate in Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look at them. Now, we're not going to look at them in any particular order. <clears throat> Actually, the uh, the one that would come first in the text would be the gospel. We're, we're going to say that to last. We're going to start this morning basically in verse 18, but I want to read you three verses. 
I want to read you verses 16, 17, and 18. Now, before I read you these and introduce the subject, just know this. I would just about bet you my paycheck that the 400 won't be saying what I'll be saying. So, you gotta figure it out. You gotta figure out what you, what you believe. You gotta figure out who you're gonna listen to. You gotta figure out whether this is the truth or this is just a bunch of baloney. I'll show you what I mean. Let me read you the three verses. Beginning in verse 16. Romans 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God that endures forever. Let me start this morning like this. Uh, actually, the focus of our attention is on verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by the, their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let me begin like this. Um, this is no fun. I take no pleasure I get no satisfaction. I get not an ounce worth of joy, uh, uh, enjoyment out of telling people or telling you that people are going to perish. Um, I, I get a great deal of joy out of telling people what God demands so that we might avoid that perishing. But I don't know whether you have, but I have uh, listened to certain voices that sound like they are enjoying the idea that God is going to get them. I mean, one day, finally, God will just smush them. There's almost a glee in their voices. One of my heroes is a guy who told me that every time you speak about hell, you ought to speak about hell with a tear in your voice. Well, I don't know whether I can put one in there, but I can simply tell you this. I get no pleasure. I take no particular delight in telling you or discussing with you the wrath of God. Now, let me say real quickly, before you, before you um, dismiss it, that is, before you say, well, I don't know. I don't even believe in that. Uh, you know, that's, I, I, I know that you fundy church people believe in something like that, but I don't even believe in something like that. Before you do that, let me make, let me just ask you to consider a couple of things. 
know this much, that the premier teacher of love and grace in all of mankind, Jesus Christ, spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. That Jesus Christ, the the premier teacher of love and grace, spoke more about hell than did Moses, Isaiah, David, John, Paul, and Peter combined. So, if you choose to reject the whole notion, then let me tell you, first of all, what you're doing. You are saying that you are more loving, more kind, less barbaric than is Jesus Christ. That you know more, that you have a bigger heart, and have more compassion than does Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who is the primary communicator of the doctrine of the wrath of God. There's another thing that I want you to consider. Before you, before you dismiss this out of hand, and, 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 and I know, ladies and gentlemen, that it is very voguish. It is very hip to say things like, well, I don't even believe in the wrath of God because my God is more loving than that. And then uh, uh, my God is, <coughs> is all love, and he would never do anything like that because my God is all loving. Well, understand when you say that, here's what you're saying. Well, let me, let me put it in the form of a question. That God that you believe in, what did it cost your God to love you? Where are his nails? Where is his cross? What did it cost your God to love you? Absolutely nothing. Because I don't believe in any of that. Fine. That, that's fine. But just know this. In your effort to make God more loving, ironically, you have made him less loving. Because the God that I want to tell you about is a God who spared not his only son so that I could have forgiveness. But your God Sacrifice nothing. My God, that is the one who is described here, is the God who went to indescribable extremes to demonstrate his love towards his people. So, just as a preface, I'm saying if you dismiss this whole idea of the wrath of God is out of hand, um, know that you're saying you're more knowledgeable and more loving than is Jesus Christ. And that your God, it cost him nothing to save you. Now, here, here's the second thing. I want you to notice in the text what God is angry about. If you look at the text with me, and actually it's the text is really only verse 18. So if you'll just look there with me. You'll find out what God's angry about. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
um, <clears throat> who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Um, now, guys, first of all, just a little notation. Before you can suppress something, you got to have something. To suppress it, you got to have it first. So all I'm saying is this. There was certain truth that people had that they took it, acknowledged it, saw it, and then said, I got to get rid of it. I've got to suppress it. I've got to hide it. Because very frankly, I don't like it. It's not that they suppressed nothing. They suppressed truth. They were in possession of certain truth that they looked at, examined, and said, don't like it, got to get rid of it, suppress it. Dug a hole and buried it, but they got rid of it. <clears throat> I love to tell this story, and I tell it, um, I think I've told it before in here, but it, it, it illustrates my point, at least I hope it does. Um, think with me, if you can, about two, two natives in the darkest jungles of Africa. And um, they live there, they're in loincloths, and they have, you know, bones in their nose and, and uh, are just, are, are, are hidden, unfounded, an unfound colony. So one day, they're, they're walking through the jungle, jungle just after they got back from the river where they caught supper that night. And, and as they're walking through the jungle, they, they see something glimmering in the sun. They bend over and they find a wristwatch. They see this wristwatch. Um, and they say, uh, let me pick it up and, you know, kind of clean it off and look at this thing. And there's some little hand going around and, and boy, it's getting kind of late too. And, and, um, uh, they're, they're, uh, they look at this, this, this watch and they say, now, that's an interesting thing. And one of them looks at his partner and he says, um, in his native tongue, he says, um, did you make this watch? And he says, um, no, I didn't make this watch. You make this watch? No, I didn't make this watch either. Who made this watch? I don't know who made this watch. Who, are you, who do you think I am? I didn't make the watch. Did you make the watch? I didn't make the watch. And so then they're, then they're getting a little bit nervous. And so they, so they, they take the watch and they flip it over. And they see, they look at this silver back. And so they figure out maybe they take a knife and they, and they pry off the back of the, the watch. And there's these little gears, these little teeth, these little things going neat, 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 all around back here. And, and, and they look at each other and say, I've never seen anything like this. Have you ever seen anything like this? No, I haven't seen anything like this. I mean, what about the tribes up the river? No, they never, they never, they don't have one of these. Then, then, who made this? And they conclude, I don't know who made it. But whoever made it must be one scary dude. Now, ladies and gentlemen, at that moment, those two people face a choice. <clears throat> what am I going to now do with the information that is now in my possession? What am I going to do with it? I can take it to my tribal chieftain and I'm saying, listen, we need to launch an all-out effort to find out who it is that made this thing. And send out people to every tribe all around here and find out who is the author of such a thing as this wristwatch. Or... 
We can take this wristwatch, dig a hole, a deep hole, throw that sucker in there, cover it up, and don't say a word about this to anybody. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is the picture that you get in Romans chapter 1. That man in ungodliness and unrighteousness has taken truth and he has suppressed that truth. And that is the thing about which God is angry. Look at the text. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, guys, that's what God is angry about. Suppressed truth. Truth that was available, but not improved upon, but buried. In response to that choice to have done that, I want you to notice what God then does. It's mentioned three times, verse 24, 26, and 28. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. So notice, folks, that the worst and the fairest and the most severe punishment that God can give to anyone is to simply let them have what it is that they wanted in the first place. And what does do those two natives want? And what do men everywhere in this planet want? They want independence. Everybody wants to rule the world. Everybody wants to be free from anyone who's telling them anything that they should do and so that they can give vent to their deepest longings. And if there is anybody on whom they are dependent, they simply cannot do that. We want our own way. So, ladies and gentlemen, One of the things that hell is, is God giving people exactly what they want. I want nothing to do with a God in my life. And so God says, fine. And he gives them up. He gives them over to their own passions. Hell is giving people what they've longed for. What they've longed for is a life that is completely independent from, from, from a God who has a law. Um, they want a life where God is completely banished from their presence. And that place, ladies and gentlemen, is called hell. Where God abandons them. Which is what 
they longed for all along. I'll read you a quote from J.I. Packer. Packer says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. They have chosen a world of of utter self-centeredness where there is no thought nor consideration of God at all. And so everything that I wanted as, as one who could be the master of my own destiny and the captain of my own soul I get it. You see, ladies and gentlemen, one of the punishments of God is that you don't want me in your life. Fine. And so life is then lived completely self-orbiting, self-centered, and is ultimately enjoyed in a place known as hell. You know, um, any of you who are married, surely you dated some people before you got married. Some, maybe, maybe you didn't, but... Uh, I mean, did you ever, did you ever date anybody that was so self-centered that you couldn't just, you just couldn't stand them? I mean, they were cute, they were shapely, they were foxy, but they were so self-absorbed that it was just, it was impossible. And so instead of pursuing their relationship, you ran for your life. Because self-centeredness does that. It makes you ugly. A life that's centered upon me? It just turns you into something real ugly. And so, that's what people think they want. They find some truth that they don't like. And they suppress it. And eventually God says, Okay. It's all yours. Now, a third point. You know, um, we know who you are, Dr. Young. You're a little old and you're getting older and you're, you know, you're, you're a little bit of a fundy anyway. And, and, uh, we're not sure we can really trust what you have to say. And, and, um, um, uh, the Bible says that hell is a lake of fire. Now, now, Dr. Young, you really don't expect us to believe that, that hell is a lake of fire now, do you? I mean, my goodness. I mean, those are just symbols, right? And I would say to you, right. You're exactly right. Those are symbols. 
My, my quibble is not with the word symbol. My quibble is with the word just. Here, here's my point. Do symbols exceed or fall short of the reality to which they point? For instance, we, we have an American flag. Some of us love the, the stars and the stripes and, 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 and we still get chills down our spine when, when, uh, when you see Normandy and the American flag and the, the piece of ground where 10,000 American soldiers are dead and, you know, we, we love that, that old glory, that flag. That's a symbol of our country. And so we, we make laws to protect it and it's sacred to some of us and, and you're not supposed to let it hit the ground and now they're burning them or have been for years, but, but, you know, but that's, that's a symbol, right? Now tell me. Does that symbol exceed or fall short of the reality to which it points? Well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? The flag isn't the country. It just, it's just a symbol of the greater, grander, glorious country of ours. Symbols always fall short of the realities to which they point. Here's my point. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, when you read in Scripture that hell is a lake of fire, that is a symbol. And it is a symbol that falls short of the reality to which it points. And I say this, anyone who is in hell today would give everything they have and anything that they own or anything they ever did own if hell were only a lake of fire. But it's far more than that. It is, um, it is an abandonment of God. An abandonment that All those things that you have taken for granted like beauty and love and air and comfort. All of those beauties will be gone. All of those enjoyments. All of those little things that are just tokens of His common grace. They are gone. God has expressed, God is angry because people have taken his truth and, and suppressed it. I got one more point and, and I'll quit. Folks, for me, the final word on, on the wrath of God is this. How do you explain Calvary? How do you explain the cross? Why, why, did, why did the Son of God have to endure all that suffering and all that the scourging and the thirst and the abandonment? Why, why was he treated? Why was Jesus Christ treated like that by his Father? And, and I say to you folks, there, there's only one answer to that question. It was because of the wrath of God against sin. 
It was God's hatred of sin that demanded that Christ be treated like that. There's, there's no other, there's no other way of salvation. If there were one, then Jesus would not have had to endure all that he endured so that people like us could be saved. God would have never asked him to go through that. But again, why does he go through that? Why does Jesus go through that? It was because of the wrath of God against sin. And so there was no other way to deal with sin and for the wrath of God to oppose it than Jesus Christ's death on the cross. I'll say one other thing in in view of the cross too. At the same time that the cross is the display of God's inflexible hatred towards sin, it is also, it is the the greatest manifestation of the love of God ever. There, There is a sense in which hell, stay with me, hell is a measurement of love. Let me try to explain that. There's a, there's a couple of statements. Luke 7's one, Matthew 10's another. This, it's just a parallel passage where Jesus says, don't fear. Don't fear somebody who can kill the body. But here's who I will tell you to fear. Fear him who can kill body and soul. And after that, cast them into hell. Jesus said that, by the way. He said... Oh, dying is nothing to fear. No. But let me tell you what there is to fear. If you want to fear something, says Jesus, here's what you need to fear. Fear the one who can kill body and soul and then cast you into hell. Fear that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, next step. What did Jesus experience for you and me? He experienced the very thing that he said was the worst possible scenario imaginable. The the thing that is the worst conceivable idea is the thing that he experienced. Why? So that you wouldn't have to. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a measurement of how much the Son of God loves His people. That He would endure the ravages, the forsakenness, the abandonment. So that we wouldn't have to. Guys, um, verse 
Verse 18, well, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God and the salvation. And, um, and then in verse 18, he begins to explain the gospel that he's not ashamed of. Now, I want you to notice in Romans 1, when Paul gets ready to start explaining the gospel, where does he start? He doesn't start with the benefits. He doesn't start with the experiences of peace, joy, love, and happiness. When the Apostle Paul got ready to begin his explanation of the gospel, he started like this. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their or by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is why the Apostle Paul was so overwhelmingly committed to the proclamation of the gospel. Because it is that gospel that is the only deliverance that any of us can ever hope for. In it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Because the just shall live by faith. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, remind us of what your word says and that you will help people in this room sort out who to believe. they got a whole world telling them otherwise. And then they've got a few voices dotting the country here and there saying something else. And so we have to figure it out, Lord. We have to figure out what, what are we going to believe. And I pray that you will uh, lead every, every soul in this room to the place where they recognize that you have found a way to save. And that way is completely and totally and ultimately in Christ and Christ alone and in his finished work. That apart from Christ, the only thing that awaits is an everlasting separation in a place called hell. I pray, Father, that um, that the beauty of the gospel might dominate Grace Evan, but that the, the, the gospel that is dominating here is one that reveals and reflects all that you have done, all that you have said, all that you have opposed, all that you have provided for people as wicked as I am. Now, Father, would you dismiss us with a sense of great and grand and glorious deliverance that we are a people who have seen the truth and far from suppressing it, we have embraced it. We have loved it. 
We have hidden it in our hearts. And it has become the thing which steers our lives and and directs us as to how we make decisions. Might your truth, all of it, be our great delight. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name.